good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Who doesn't love a good joke? After all, isn't laughter supposed to be the best medicine? And we've probably all experienced how a good laugh just increased our own sense of well-being or even how a shared laugh created a sense of camaraderie. But humor can do a lot more than just lighten a mood or create a shared experience. What happens when jokes target marginalized groups? How does racist humor contribute to racial inequality? To talk more about humor and racism, today I'm joined by Dr. Raul Perez. Dr. Perez is the author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. Dr. Perez is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Laverne. His work examines the intersections of racism, culture, power, and affect in relation to social inequality, cultural change, and social movements in the U.S. and globally. He has been published in American Behavioral Scientists, Discourse and Society, Ethnicities, and Sociological Perspectives. He's also been featured in Time, The Griot, and Latino Rebels, among others. Well, welcome, Dr. Raul Perez. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Uh, thank you so much for having me, uh, Suna, and I'm uh, yeah, really glad to be on your show. Yes. Well, as we were kind of chatting uh, before we came on air, I was just remarking how grateful I am for Twitter because that's where I saw kind of the news of your book circulating. And I mean, with this title, I was immediately just hooked, right? The Souls of White Jokes, of course, a play on um, some other writings, which we'll talk about as well. And then just this idea of racist humor and how it fuels white supremacy. And so, so I'm just so glad that you um, responded to my message <laughs> when I said like, hey, I'd love to have you on the show. So thank you again. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit, let's just start with what led you to write this book about humor, racist humor, because I think for a lot of folks, I think, well, it's just a joke. Like, what's the big deal? But for you, as you lay out in the book, and we'll get more into it, it is a big deal, but let's just start with kind of how you came to this interest in humor and its role in upholding racism. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so I guess, I mean, the book was an outgrowth of kind of work that I've been doing over the last uh, decade or so, mm -hmm. um, thinking about the relationship between humor, uh, you know, race and racism, racial inequality, um, but also how, you know, how, how it is that humor is able to somehow circumvent some of these sort of societal norms on, um, on, on a lot of discourse, not just racial discourse, uh, but I saw it pretty, pretty uh, extensively in the case of, uh, of race. And uh, you know, so, so the project really for me started uh, uh, way back in, when I was an undergraduate student at, at the University of California um, at Irvine. And, um, 
you know, sort of this, this moment of kind of contradiction for myself. Uh, on the one hand, I, you know, I was a non-traditional college student. I was a transfer student. Uh, you know, I was not a very good high school student. And, you know, uh, just barely graduated. And, and, uh, and so I had to go to the, to the JC to keep um, my job as a teaching. I was a teaching assistant for LAUSD because I thought I wanted to be a, a grade school teacher. That, that's kind of what, where, where I was um, uh, headed towards. Um, you know, so by the time I got to the university, I was like really serious about my studies. And I think I took myself too seriously. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, but I noticed that, you know, uh, uh, living in the dorms, because I, I made sure I want to live in the dorms. I want, you know, the full college experience. And it was living in the dorms that was quite interesting because that's where I saw a lot of these kind of boundaries being tested often through joke telling and humor, mm-hmm. um, living in a, you know, living in a, in a sort of context where you have, you know, 18 to 21 year olds kind of sharing the same space, uh, you know, kids from all over the country, uh, we had international students. And it was this interesting moment where for many people, it's the first time you're living with people outside of your ethnic group, outside of your hometown, outside of your neighborhood. Uh, you know, from a different country. And of course, all of that is kind of inflected with racial sort of, um, you know, uh, lived experiences and and, and so forth. Um, and so humor became a way where those boundaries were being tested. Mm-hmm. And I recall very vividly, like, you know, these kind of nights where, you know, people were kind of trading in racist jokes, just kind of, you know, uh, freely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, that was interesting, not because I'd never heard these jokes before, but just the context of it was was very jarring. One, I was on a college campus living in the dorms. Uh, I, we lived in, in themed houses too. And the house I lived in, I had declared a sociology major and I lived in the sociology house. And so for me, this was even more just kind of like, uh, just kind of jarring. Um, and then of course we'd get these periodic emails from, you know, the university administrators talking about, you know, uh, you know this is the, the language of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion and civility and so forth. And, um, and I noticed that, that these, this recurring problem was something that I just kept paying attention to it. I said like, wait a minute, this is, here it is again. And so I saw it front and center in, in where I was living every day. Um, but then like sort of globally too, and then global events that came, made their way back to the institution were happening during that same time as well when I was, um, when I was a student um, at the university. Um, and one of those was the, uh, uh, I don't know if, if, if other folks remember this, but it was the controversy with the with, with the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad in uh, some Danish cartoons, uh, a newspaper um, over in Denmark, which uh, started to, um, you know, uh, draw these cartoon illustrations of the Prophet Muhammad, depicting him as a terrorist, um, you know, to comic effect in the way that they were depicted and drawn. And, and of course, the, uh, the cartoonist and, you know, the magazine, far right magazine where it came out, <clears throat> It was like, hey, these are just jokes. Like it's, you know, what's the what's the big deal? And it was also used in the moment of the kind of the quote unquote war on terror. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the United States had invaded Iraq and you know and, and was in the Middle East militarily. That uh, that that the, the fact that Muslim uh, people were being uh, were upset about this this uh, depiction of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, both in Europe but also here in the United States. That that this cartoon depiction and the response by the Muslim community was like, aha, see, these people can't take a joke. 
what is wrong? So this is kind of to show the kind of, uh, you know, the clash of civilizations, right? It's like Westerners, we know what humor is. We know what satire is. We know how to take a joke. You know, people in the Middle East, people in the so-called third world, people, you know, in the former colonies, they just don't get it because, you know, we're more advanced of a society and civilization than they are. Um, and of course, this controversy made it back to the University of California, Irvine, because when I was an undergraduate student, um, you know, and I think it might be still the case today, um, that we had one of the largest, if not the largest Muslim student, not only population, but the Muslim student union on the campus. Mm -hmm. So these were students who, who were part of an organization and, and part of the organization was to kind of you know, to kind of educate the public about what it is like to be a Muslim student, the Muslim experience. And they would have political events and invite guest speakers on the campus about, you know, global and local issues concerning their experience um, um, as, as Muslims. <clears throat> and um, so for me, that was another moment of like, aha, like saying like, wait a minute, there's this geopolitical issue now where in this case, a, a joke or a cartoon is at the center of this controversy. And then it's made its way back here to the institution that I'm getting an education at. So, so I saw at the micro level and at the geopolitical level, the way that humor could be used, one, to, to sort of to test boundaries, to, to reinforce ideologies, to kind of to, you know, to push people in a corner and then people respond. And then the common retort is like, hey, you can't take a joke. What is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And so stuff that I, you know, the, you know coming of age, you kind of see that on the playground, you see that in the locker room, you see that, and especially now with the internet, you see that, you know, on social media and so forth. So, so for me, it was like this, well, this is interesting. Um, and of course I'm, a, I'm an undergraduate student. I have to pick a career. I have to figure out what the hell I'm gonna do. And it's like, um, well, uh, well, let me do this research because it was part of the graduating experience. Like you gotta do a research project. So I picked the topic and my topic was, I want to learn more about racist humor. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I would run to the library and I'm like, well, there aren't that many books. There aren't that many articles. There's not a whole lot of stuff. And then at one point, one of my advisors was like, well, maybe you're the person to do it. And, and again, I'm a person that sometimes maybe takes myself a little too seriously. And I was like, maybe you're right. I'm going to be the person that does it. And, uh, and I've kind of followed that sort of idea, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, following my nose along the way to, to where does this take me? That's always a gamble, right? When you're a graduate student or when oh, you're yeah. a college student, it's like, is this going to have any payoff? So, um, you know, I'm a working class student from a working class immigrant family. So for me, it was just, just going to college itself was a big deal. Um, you know, and I didn't think what was, you know, going to come along the way, but, but I, I was motivated enough to say like, well, here's something interesting. I don't see a whole lot of sort of, um, at least I don't see a whole lot of analysis that that kind of that that satisfy the questions that I have. Mm -hmm. And when I when I didn't see those, then I was like, no, well, I'm gonna dig a little further. Or when an explanation was insufficient, I'm like, well, let me see if I can have an answer to it. And the, kind of that was my approach to it. And that's kind of what led me to articles uh, yeah, along the way. And then at a certain point, it's like, well, I think I need to write a book um, because then then I can show, look at see. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm the person to to you know to to point to um, on on an issue like this. Yes, you are the person. I love that you had you know that advisor that was like maybe you're the person like you can do this right. Um, so what great encouragement! And then here you are. You in fact have done it and have written um, kind of like the book on on racist humor and. 
you know, what I really enjoyed about reading this book is kind of even just what you reflected on as you were giving us this kind of history of how you came to this question, which is that it's something that we're all exposed to, right? This racist humor, we might see it, you know, even on TV. Um, and you give some really great examples that a lot of us are probably familiar with. And we'll talk a little bit about that too. But also, like you mentioned, we're also surrounded by it. And we might even be engaging in it as well, right? So it's something we're familiar with, but you're really peeling back the layers and saying like, it's not in fact just a joke. It's not a, a lighthearted, but it's actually doing something in society. Um, and I think the way that you've kind of explained it, it helped folks who might be listening right now and are like, oh, whatever, y'all don't know how to have fun. You know, it's like, well, no, actually, this is a lot deeper than just a joke. And I think if we even took a minute just to think about, you know, some of the things that people are saying, we could understand that, you know, already. So, uh, you gave this great kind of example of this racist cartoon, right? This depiction. Um, but I'm wondering, let's bring it here to the U.S. context, because something that you talk about, kind of open up the book with, is um, thinking about blackface. And I thought this was just a, a really good place to start, because I think kind of as a society, we understand, or most people understand that it's wrong, right? And it's something that people shouldn't do even though we continuously see undergrads and even elected officials engaging in this behavior. But could you kind of tell us a little bit about what Blackface did in the time period and context of when it first started? And I think that will kind of help us as we're thinking about racist humor and what it does in society. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's uh, that's a good way to go about it, uh, and, and that's kind of what I realized in doing this work. It's like I, I needed to to do a lot of the, you know, historical groundwork here, and I kind of you know pretended I was a historian for a bit, and you know, mm -hmm. digging into this background and trying to uh, one trying to see what the historians did, and then trying to sort of um, kind of expand or extend or maybe go in a different direction that the historian or the historical approach wasn't able to. Uh, and so I kept going back to blackface minstrelsy, especially in trying to tell, you know, a story about racist humor in the United States. Um, you know, and one of the things that I that I do in the book and in other works, uh, you know, I you know I I essentially called racist humor in the United States, you know, the national sense of humor. Um, and part of why I do that is is because of the fact that racist humor emerged as a culture industry. It, it emerged as a form of entertainment you know, only within a few decades after the United States becomes a country, right? The American Revolution happens in 1776, takes a few decades for the United States to kind of figure out, you know, how to, how to, how to manner and structure its, its, itself. Um, uh, and then it's, its art forms and cultural forms begin to emerge thereafter. And, you know, historians have pointed out that, you know, one of the first, if not the first sort of homegrown original form of, of, of art entertainment that comes out of the United States, you know, what, what we call culture, um, is, is in fact blackface minstrelsy, right? Because the United States, you know, has this kind of junior, you know, sort of nation who, who, who had a revolution against its, its, its empire, um, was still relying on, uh, on its relationship and on the fact that it, that, it, that it emerged out of European colonialism. So any kind of art form or cultural forms that existed here were still European, 
right? Uh, from novels and plays and literature and music, it's all, it's all still European. Um, and so blackface in a way becomes a response to the kind of critique that, that the United States was not a unique uh, culture or society because it had nothing unique to offer the world, right? It's like your operas are, you know, Italian, your music, you know, your, your plays are Shakespearean. So what is there uniquely American? Uh, about your your new society, um, and so on the one hand, blackface is kind of like a it, it's kind of like a, a way to take a jab at European culture and art, and saying like, hey, well, look, we're going to take your art forms, your classical music, sort of, you know, uh, musicians, you know, your your um, your plays, your operas, your theater stage. We're going to take that. We're going to invert it because instead of it being a sort of you know, a, a white person, you know, European person up on the stage. Here, we're gonna we're gonna put a quote unquote Negro, you know, who's gonna who's gonna wear your clothes, who's gonna play your instrument, and is gonna do it in a buffoonish way. And that's where some of the humor came in. It's like that they, you know, that, that the musician would hold the instrument incorrectly, or you know, would deliver some kind of you know statement or you know political sort of diatribe, but then use the words incorrectly, you know, signaling that the person is incompetent. Um, so on the one hand, the, the joke of blackface was to make fun of high European art. But then on the other hand, it was also in the vein of reinforcing white supremacy in the society, reinforcing this idea of, you know, a ranking of, 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 of humanity you know, whiteness at the top, and in this case, you know, blackness at the bottom. And so it was doing these two things uh, at the same time, mocking European society and culture, reinforcing white supremacy. And then three, the other thing that it was doing is, you know, the fact that, you know, not all white people in the United States were on equal footing. You know, you had immigrants coming in, you had, you know, the, the new ruling class white people, the George Washingtons and the founders of the Declaration of Independence and all these people. I mean, they're the ruling class, they're the, they're the leaders, right? They're the new people in power. And then you had the immigrants, you had the people working in coal mines, you had white people working on plantations and so forth. Uh, and so there was a class divide in, in, the, in the society. And that class divide was often was often tense. You know, you would have conflict. In fact, you have a conflict that happens right after the American Revolution, uh, called Shays Rebellion, where all all the people who who fought in the American Revolution were like, you know, they were getting their land repossessed because they couldn't pay back their debts. And so you have all these people who say, well, this is pretty terrible. You know, uh, the country we fought to make independent uh, is now taking our our farms, taking our land. And so there was already tension between the rich whites and poor whites. Um, and so one of the things that historians point out is that blackface minstrelsy then kind of began to flatten some of that class tension and conflict between rich whites, landowning whites, ruling class whites, and poor disenfranchised whites to say that, hey, you know, uh, 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 white folks, you know, down below, you know, we're on the same team. Like, you know, we're, we're all on the same side of this. And you know, isn't it great that that we're not the 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 buffoon on the stage? You know, the figure of ridicule. Um, so in that sense, you know, uh, 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 blackface minstrelsy and racist ridicule, it kind of served in a way of you know what the um, historian and sociologist W. E. B. Du Bois, you know, briefly describes as you know the public and psychological wages of whiteness. That you know, poor whites might have had no money, no capital. 
you know, disenfranchised, powerless, uh, but at least they were white. And so this whiteness was this ego boost that, hey, well, at least we're white and whiteness means something. Um, and of course, that was already being described by scientists and, you know, and, and, uh, and lawmakers and, you know, the, the sort of the, the new founders of, of the society, um, you know, and scientific thought and scientific racism. So this is beginning to develop, but most white folks uh, are not reading, you know, uh, 800 page book on theories of mankind, you know? Uh, and in fact, most white, white people in that period uh, could not even, didn't even know how to read. Most of them you know, were illiterate. So, uh, but the comic stage then serves as a pedagogical tool. It's teaching people to see race. It's teaching, it's teaching poor whites to see themselves as white. So you're not just Irish, you're not just German, you know, you're not just uh, X, Y, Z, you're white. And so the, the, the ridicule of black people is allowing them to see that. And, and it becomes very powerful in cementing this idea of, of, of whiteness. Um, and so that whiteness comes at the expense of black freedom, you know, uh, black people being treated as people, right? Uh, they're just buffoons and they deserve to be on plantations. And that's the punchline basically of blackface. Yes, thank you so much for, for giving us that kind of overview because I think oftentimes, we can understand um, maybe in this instance, blackface as a type of racist humor when we're looking back at the past. But now when we're thinking contemporarily about humor and racism and how it's upholding um, a white power system, people might start to get a little uncomfortable conceding to the fact that humor can do all of this work. Um, so that's why I wanted to start with kind of this historical example and then we can bring it forward because I think your point of, you know, this comedy is teaching people, um, in this case, teaching white people that they are white, right, and trying to kind of create this racial group solidarity that may not normally have been there because of class differences, or even immigration histories, ethnic histories, um, but then also teaching, you know, white folks what it means to, in relation to what it means to be black, right? And what whiteness should hold or what type of um, social standing whiteness should confer. Um, so what it means to be a white person in society at this time. Um, so comedy is doing a lot, right? It's not just it's not just jokes and a good time, but it really is doing something for society. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Raul Perez, the author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. Now, before the break, um, you were giving us kind of an overview of some histories of, of racist humor here, thinking about blackface, but I want to bring it to more contemporary time periods because in the book, you look at kind of three different cases or three different arenas where we can see racist humor operating. And so you talk about racist humor as used by the far right, um, racist humor as we see circulating um, within police departments, and then also racist humor humor and kind of politics more broadly and here focusing a lot on President Obama and a lot of the caricatures that we saw circulating um, in during through, throughout his presidency. Um, of course, we won't be able to talk about all of them in our time together this morning, um, but I wanted to go ahead and kind of 
talk about some of the the concepts and some of the examples that you give and um you know based on where we are contemporarily i think kind of this first chapter that you dive into thinking about the far right and its use of racist humor is a good place for us to start uh, because we can really see what some of those implications are um so let's kind of start there and how you talk in the chapter about the far right and the way it uses racist humor to kind of make light of certain situations, but also draw people into this kind of far right ideology. So could you tell us a little bit more about some of the things you saw as you were looking through kind of um, different depictions, right? Different humor. Yeah, so I so that, yeah, that's that's a good question. And thanks for the uh, sort of uh, uh, synopsis of the book there. I think hopefully <laughs> that, that helps some of the listeners. Um, yeah, so so I think the, the, the far right really, I think, consciously, at least certain segments of the far right, consciously took the idea of, you know, what I was mentioning earlier, that, that you know, racist humor and humor more generally can, can be used as a pedagogical tool. And they've kind of taken that and kind of run with it over the last few decades. Um, in, in a context where, as, as you mentioned earlier, like most of us now, you know, cringe or, you know, we're supposed to cringe at the fact that blackface minstrelsy is, is unacceptable and it's kind of a horrendous form of racism. Um, you know, but that wasn't the case up until the civil rights movement, you know, for 150 years or so. It was, it was again, the national sense of humor. It was completely acceptable. And it's only during and after the civil rights movement that it's seen as unacceptable, that it's seen as quote unquote racist. Um, but, but it doesn't kind of end there, right? Because after the civil rights movement, um, in this new period of the kind of culture of racism and white supremacy being challenged and contested, you know, where it's acceptable for white, uh, for non-whites to be in society, their place in society, now they're supposed to be equal, you know, the laws change, you can't discriminate people based on race and other sort of variables. Um, so that there, there's this moment of kind of tension and debate about humor um, and then you begin to see the emergence of the so-called era of political correctness, where, hey, we can't even take a joke anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, um, and the far right really kind of is paying attention and it has their ears on that. And, uh, and, and it, it knows, it's self-aware enough to know that, hey, wait a minute, racist humor, that's, that's good old American fun. Like that's been here forever. Now we can't make jokes about darkies or, you know, people of color and, you know, uh, what's up with that, right? Mm -hmm. And so th they're using the larger cultural debate in the society about the acceptability and unacceptability of racism more generally, it, you know, in the context of speech and discourse and so forth. And they're intervening and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, um, if, if you if you disagree with this whole political correctness nonsense and you still think racist humor is funny, look, we have something for you. Here's some racist cartoons. Here's some, you know, sort of illustrations that, you know, we're taking a jab at people of color. We're also taking a jab at those white people who, who, who are kind of, you know, from their perspective, they're kind of committing, you know, cultural suicide in the sense that, you know, they, they, they're, they're, they're okay to sort of, you know, hand over their power and status to people of color because they're good white liberals. Um, and so they're mocking sort of white liberalism um, as, as, as a form of, you know, white masculinity being uh, feminized, right? They're being emasculated. So, so, so the far right then is kind of using humor strategically 
to on the one hand deploy a critique of political correctness that's already part of the culture. Um, two is they're trying to find people who might be sympathetic to their worldview because they're sharing this taboo humor that's no longer supposed to be acceptable in polite society, but they're saying deep down it's still funny. Look at here, check this out. Um, and then three, it's it's also being used to kind of retell a story about um, sort of white society and white masculinity post-civil rights. So, so I really kind of take a deep dive into, you know, what the organization that probably was the most influential far-right organization of the post-civil rights period. Um, and that's the organization of white Aryan uh, resistance and, and the uh, leader, uh, Tom Metzger. Uh, and, you know, he, he consciously, uh, and he talks about it, uh, was deploying humor as a way to try to draw in people into, into a far-right ideology. Um, and he's using these cartoon illustrations, uh, I include a, a number of them in, in the book, to kind of retell the story of white masculinity post-civil rights. As I mentioned earlier, white masculinity uh, has been emasculated uh, by feminism, it's been emasculated by the civil rights movement, it's been emasculated by affirmative action. So all these things that are harming you know, uh, from their point of view, the rightful place of white men in society um, uh, are, are negatively impacting the well-being of, of white men to take their rightful place, you know, uh, as, as the sort of the, uh, at the top of the food chain. Um, and so they're taking a jab at all that. They're taking a jab at, again, white men who, who don't know that, that they're on the verge of, you know, being extinct from their point of view. Um, and of course, they're trying to mobilize and radicalize young white men in particular because young white men are more sort of vulnerable, uh, they're more impressionable. And of course, civil rights movement just happened. So this kind of cultural revolution that made racism unacceptable. But you also have other changes in the economic arena, right? It's this, you know, the 19, the post-civil rights era and especially the 1980s or so, uh, which is when the white Aryan resistance is really having this kind of upsurge. You also have, these kind of um, these these shifts in the economy. You have globalization happening. You have the outsourcing of you know uh, manufacturing in the United States uh, beginning to accelerate during this period. So you have a lot of these places, a lot of these you know formerly predominantly white working class communities all over the country, where you have you know uh, you know white folks who used to work in these towns and these factories are now being, in a sense, disenfranchised by global capitalism that's choosing to move factories to China and to, uh, to Asia and Latin America and other places, you know, to pay pennies on the dollar to make more profit. Um, but of course, the way this is often sold is like, oh, well, the Chinese are taking your jobs, the immigrants are taking your jobs, you know, people of color are taking your jobs. Uh, and the far right is playing into that. Um, and of course, the real lived experience of, you know, white people in these communities that are being impoverished because of these changes in global capital, um, uh, you know, for the advantage of global capital are kind of being left out in the wilderness, right? And so the far right is kind of predatory in that sense. And it's trying to find these people and bring them under their wing and say, hey, we have a story for you for why your life sucks, you know, and the story that they're being told is a story of white supremacy. Right, the story of white male supremacy, and you know, and if you're gonna if you're gonna be able to take your place in this context, then you have to be willing to do what it takes to do that. Um, and so, you know, jokes and humor is not the only way that radicalization is happening, but it's in a sense it's an effective way because it's kind of a more 
kind of seemingly lower stakes way. Hey, it's just a joke, you know, uh, you know, and then, but then of course, there's always the sort of the, the, that common sense notion of, you know, well, it's funny because it's true. Right. And so that's already, again, part of the cultural reference point um, that the far right, you know, is, is more than willing to sort of tap into and, and, and play into. Um, and of course, uh, what, what I look at in the book is the far right of the eighties and nineties is really doing this deliberately and essentially leaves a, a blueprint for how to weaponize racist humor for the, for the new generation of far right, you know, the so-called alt-right, you know, the, the, the white supremacist millennials and so forth, who's, who's, who realize that, hey, wait a minute, uh, this is kind of fun. This is kind of interesting. This is another way to tap into and get our message out there. Uh, and, and what I find in the research is that oftentimes they're recirculating the very same images that that the far right was using in these newspapers that you know were seen as just extreme sort of way on the fringes kind of stuff and now those images are like all over you know uh you know online spaces like 4chan and these other places that have become kind of the 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 underbelly um, of the far right today mm -hmm. I love how you bring that again, like how these images continue to be recycled and updated um, or put back into kind of cultural circulation, uh, because it's often the case where we see people maybe using racist terms that we feel like, OK, that's so outdated, but it's because of this recirculation, right, this continual circulation of some of these, you know, quote unquote, outdated imagery, but it continues to fuel these racist beliefs. Um, I thought that was really unique, again, thinking about something I often think about, which is the durability of, again, some of these quote unquote, outdated terms or outdated slurs. And it's like, this is why it continues to circulate within communities. Um, and then again, is, is used um, to harass people and, and to create these boundaries. Uh, I like how you talked about how humor is really being used in this example as a way for white men to kind of reassert themselves, but also to organize to potentially make material changes to reassert themselves um, in their quote unquote rightful position as well. So humor is doing a lot. And it's also, as you mentioned, it's also disciplining people, um, in this case, other white folks or other white men specifically. So when you talk about humor as creating boundaries, right, it's creating boundaries, maybe in this case, against folks who aren't white, but also creating boundaries between against the wrong type of white people in these folks' eyes anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, so, so, so humor does a lot, right? It does more than we sort of, than we're really uh, consciously aware of unless you study it, right? And so th that was one of the reasons that I kind of decided to one, study this topic, but also write a book is to try to give and offer some language, a theoretical framework for something that we all think we, we know how it works because we use it, we experience it. Um, but you know, just because you, you're familiar with something because you know it's part of the human the human condition, doesn't necessarily mean that we fully uh, understand it. You know, like we all have internal organs, but I don't know how they all work. You know, <laughs> right. so you know, so uh, uh, anyway, so I'm trying to give some language, some theoretical framework, a historical context to on the one hand, explore this historical background and historical backdrop, and then connect it to the present and connect it into places and institutions that, 
that we might not readily sort of place them into, right? So, I mean, some of my other work before the um, before the book looked at racist humor in the world in the realm of entertainment, stand-up comedy, you know, post-civil rights. So, I've kind of worked on that quite a bit um, in uh, in other publications. Uh, in this book, in particular, I, you know, I kind of dabbled in that a little bit. But, but partly what I'm trying to do is to say, wait a minute, there's these other spaces we need to pay close attention to. You know, the world of, of comedy and entertainment has been one that it's kind of, uh, in a sense, uh, it's closer in proximity to seeing the linkage between racist humor and racist culture and blackface. And here I'm saying, yes, there's a connection there, but we can't leave it there. We can't just pretend that it's solely a problem within the realm of entertainment. And here, how does the far right use it? How do police officers use it? What does it do again, like these boundaries you're mentioning uh, in the case of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a, a white society um, in other institutions, it's playing similar kind of boundaries, right? So law enforcement is another case or in the realm of politics as well. Mm -hmm. I thought the the case of law enforcement was so important, especially again, thinking about this contemporary moment where there is increased and sustained attention to police brutality and state sanctioned murders by police, particularly of black people. And so again, this example I think really makes it real for folks who are maybe still trying to come around to this idea of like, can humor really do, you know, all of these different things? Isn't it just, you know, a joke? Shouldn't we just lighten up? But in the examples that you gave in this chapter, I think it makes it concrete, again, what this type of humor is doing, particularly in an institution like policing that is supposed to be protecting everyone, uh, but we see is not. Right. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the types, again, the types of imagery and the types of um, language and, and cartoons um, that you see circulating within police departments and kind of the impact of that. Yeah. So so law enforcement is, is another one of these contexts where you really see uh, to what extent, uh, you know, uh, a joke is not only not just a joke, but how it can do other kind of work. And, and in this case, I, I make I make the sort of case and the argument that that it can contribute to um, to the legitimation of of racial violence, right? So in the case of law enforcement, and again, this has also been a problem, at least a documented problem that I can find, you know, happening happening, you know, over the last 50 uh, years, at least in, ca in cases that I've actually found and read in newspapers or whatever, uh, but it's probably been happening for much longer than that. If we consider the way that police forces were, you know, primarily sort of white institutional spaces, and they're policing, especially in in, uh, in urban areas or, you know, in uh, in the sort of you know uh, you know post Civil War South, you know, they're, they're policing largely you know, uh, you know black people and former slaves. Um, so you know, part of part of the culture, right? So we're talking. So I'm talking about the culture of white supremacy at different scales, right? So blackface minstrelsy would be at the sort of national and international kind of scale as a form of entertainment. Uh, the far right is kind of a much more sort of micro scale. It's kind of you know uh, as a political um, uh, ideology that again it's also been expanding globally. Um, and then within institutional spaces and organizations, in this case, uh, police departments. Um, and you know, so like I mentioned earlier, like you know, humor is a way to sort of reinforce boundaries, but it's also a way to create solidarities, right? It's like, it's usually through humor and joke telling that we make friends, you know, 
uh, especially in the workplace, joking around with folks, kind of is how you build colleagues, how you strengthen certain ties with people. Of course, it also makes the time go by quicker. It's more fun being at work if you can have fun. Um, and so police officers, you know, just normally, just like every other workplace, I mean, they engage in joke telling and clowning around and messing around with colleagues, uh, uh, just like any other uh, a workforce. Uh, but what's distinct about law enforcement is that part of their job is to police, quote unquote, criminals. Uh, and of course, in a racialized society, the criminals that they're policing tend to be the people who are racialized in a sort of negative light. You know, the, these people, they're prone to criminality. And of course, in a country like the United States, you know, there, there's centuries worth of sort of, you know, uh, racializing and criminalizing you know, particular groups of people based on racial um, ideology. And so police department culture and police department humor often reflects that, right? And so that often reflects in the way that racist humor is used to dehumanize the very same people that they're supposed to be policing according to the constitution uh, through equal protection um, under the law. But if we look at the everyday sort of culture and joking around and clowning around of, of police officers across the country, right? This is not a few bad apples or just a few police departments. It's happening you know, throughout uh, police departments around the country. Um, you, know, you see that there's something to be said about the way in which police dehumanize you know, communities of color, you know, uh, depict them as animals, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, mock their their sort of uh, their status in society, you know, mock their sort of um, you know perceived proclivities that are sort of you know uh, uh, they can't they can't but help it because of their racial condition and so forth, um, and of course this is all serving to dehumanize them, and this this is what they're doing on squad cars behind the scenes through text messages through email threads and so forth. Uh, and then, you know, you can't help but consider the fact that these are the same people that are going to sort of meet up on the street. And so if culturally they share a worldview that dehumanizes these people, then how are they going to actually treat them in everyday encounters uh, on the street, right? Um, you know, so part of the argument that I'm making and part, part of the, the evidence that I'm looking at is, is how, in fact, there is, there is sort of a, you know, some kind of degree of correlation between racially dehumanizing a population, and especially in the case of law enforcement, who has the legal authority to use violence against people, will then disproportionately use violence against the people that they are continually dehumanizing in the everyday uh, in the workplace. Yes. I mean, I think this is such an important argument because we see these outcomes happening all the time. And you make the case, I think, very clear and compelling when looking at this different evidence that you've provided, right? Looking at these kind of internal documents, some of these internal, you know, emails that are circulated, circulating that are supposed to be quote unquote, just jokes, but as you explained here as well, are really serving to dehumanize people. And so if you don't see someone as human, or if you see them as, you know, inf an inferior type of human, that translates into your interactions. And we can see um, the very fatal effects of that type of, of mindset. 
And so throughout the book, you're really talking about how humor creates these solidarities, um, which of course can be um, intra-racial, but also interracial as well. Um, and thinking about humor kind of operates, um, again, in a way to uphold these different racial inequalities um, that we see throughout society. Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're back here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Raul Perez, the author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. Well, before the break, you're kind of giving us a little bit of insight into some of the empirical chapters of the book. Um, I wanted to kind of switch gears just a little bit and talk about this title of your book, because I think it's also relevant to the argument that you're making um, throughout the book as well. So The Souls of White Jokes, um, tell us a little bit more about this title and kind of what you're kind of calling upon in making um, this the title of your book. Yeah, th thanks for that. Um, so yeah, it, it's a play uh, for those that know of uh, the work of sociologist and historian W.E.B. Du Bois. It's, it's a play on some of his work. I mean, he's got two works that have a similar kind of title that I'm riffing on. Uh, you know, one, maybe more familiar, is going to be his, his, you know, his book, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, um, which is a a, a book that really kind of made Du Bois um, famous um, in part because he's talking about the kind of emotional, social, psychological impact of, of racism and, and of living in a, in a racist society uh, upon Black people themselves. And, and so he has this term that, that sociologists in particular have really picked up on, this idea of double consciousness. He says this, this, this kind of experience of always kind of living in this kind of dual condition of, you know, he says, you know, uh, of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and, and pity. Um, and so for me, kind of thinking about the theoretical sort of, you know, some of the theoretical backdrop for the work I'm looking at, you know, Du Bois became one of the scholars that I began to look at more closely. Um, and then when I, re when I reread this particular phrase that, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's quoted in, you know, endless sort of articles and books, and, and it's, been, it's been talked about this exact phrase, it's been talked about for over a century. Um, th this one particular phrase stu stood out to me like, you know, just it kind of hopped off of the, the screen when I was reading it. Um, and that's the phrase amused contempt. So I've read this article, this, this, uh, this section from, from his work, you know, countless times. And, and when I was working on the book, I was like, wait a minute, like, here's a phrase that it, Du Bois is, is signaling to the, you know, essentially to humor without really calling it humor, but what is amused contempt, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and amused contempt, Du Bois doesn't define, but, but I kind of give it some definition based on you know, what I've kind of gathered from humor scholarship and, and other folks. Um, and amused contempt is basically what, you know, ancient philosophers were talking about, you know, a few thousand years ago with, with what today is called the superiority theory of humor, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of finding pleasure or amusement, um, you know, in the pain and suffering of other people, right? And so this is, you know, Germans have a word for this, you know, I think here we, we were familiar with it, this idea of schadenfreude, right? Finding joy in the, in the misery of others. And so part of what I'm looking at then is, 
this kind of this white schadenfreude, right? A sort of racist schadenfreude. Um, and, and Du Bois's work really sort of helped me do that. Um, and, you know, what, what he called amused racial contempt here, I kind of combine that with work on racialized emotions and, you know, um, and racial theory and history and, all, and, and other work to, 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 to develop this concept that I call amused racial contempt, uh, which is what I think racist humor, uh, how it's operating or what it's doing. Um, and of course, uh, the other work by Du Bois that, that this work um, uh, that I used to, to develop my own work here is um, another essay uh, by a similar title that is, is not as famous as his work on the souls of black folk. Uh, and that was an essay that he wrote in 1920 called The Souls of White Folk. Um, and here Du Bois is really trying to give a critical analysis of whiteness. And, and Du Bois really became one of the first uh, you know, uh, scholars and sociologists and historians to really try to unpack not only what whiteness is, but offer a critical take on whiteness. Um, and for, so for Du Bois, a lot of his take on whiteness was trying to reconcile this contradiction, this idea that whiteness and white supremacy kind of means that, you know, that, that, that whiteness and, you know, and white people on the planet, past and present and future, you know, are, are going to sort of lead, you know, lead us all out of the sort of the dark ages. And they're sort of the, the highest stage in evolution of, 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 of the human condition and, and human evolution. And of course, Du Bois doesn't buy that. He says, well, this is kind of, you know, uh, ridiculous, right? And he's kind of even making fun of whiteness a little bit. Um, but he says, you know, it, you know, and he's treating kind of whiteness as a joke, but he says, you know, once we realize that, you know, in, in the literature, in the history, in, in sort of the deeds of societies and, you know, over the last centuries, he says, you know, it, it, it's still the, the reality that, you know, he says every white man's thought is seen as the greatest deed the world you know, uh, ever did, or, you know, uh, you know, every white man's, or the white man's dream is seen as the, 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 the greatest dream the world ever sang. And he says, here's where the comedy verges to tragedy. Um, and in the essay, he kind of goes further, and he's ex kind of exploring this contradiction. And he says, wait a minute, if white supremacy is true, and it's real, why are there class inequalities between whites, right? If white people are supposed to be superior and supreme, why are some whites on top and some whites on the bottom? And of course, he, he's writing this in the in the heat of uh, World War One, and he's saying if 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 all white civilization is supposed to be superior to the rest of the planet, uh, why are white nations murdering and brutalizing other white nations? And so he's pointing out this contradiction and saying, wait a minute, there, there, there's kind of something going on here in the way that white supremacy has not only been used to sort of to brutalize and colonize you know the 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 rest of the planet you know uh, uh, you know people's of color around the world but then he's saying wait a minute now white supremacy is being used to colonize white society right so it's it's destroying white society itself so so in that sense that that's kind of where i'm drawing uh, from here and then applying that to thinking more specifically and directly about how, how racism, white racism, in this case, the white sense of humor, how it's worked to kind of create um, this, this kind of toxic culture um, in the society. Again, going back to the legacy of blackface minstrelsy, uh, and of course the afterlife of blackface minstrelsy in the way that racist humor 
again, is, is even today a sort of normal feature of, of many uh, social institutions and organizations um, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think one thing that really stood out to me in, in you outlining this argument um, is really bringing it back to this idea that racism, and you say it in the book, racism is more than hatred. And I think even just like calling that out is so important because it gives us, again, as you talked about giving folks a language, but gives us a language and a perspective to really expand what it is that we're talking about when we're even talking about racism, right? It's not just this this hatred, um, this vileness that we think that we'll be able to point out when we see it, but it is in humor as well, something that we've kind of accepted as just a a joke. Um, But as you note in the book, you know, racism is more than hatred. You say it is also a practice deeply rooted in a pleasurable solidarity grounded in an amused contempt for racialized others. So racism is, you know, found in this racist humor and that it is pleasurable to the people who are using it and also, you know, listening to it or enjoying it alongside the folks who are using this racist humor. And I thought that was just such an important point because a lot of times when we talk about racism, we're talking about maybe anger or distaste or, you know, a strong dislike. And we think it must harm the person who is racist as much as it's harming the people who are experiencing the racism. But in this case, you very clearly show us that racist humor is enjoyable. And that's why it continues to exist. And that's why these racist jokes are shared um, and circulated so widely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that, was, that was one of the realizations that I kind of came to at a certain point. I'm like, I got I to gotta sort of make this in bold print. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, racism is fun, right? Like racism is fun. And, you know, we, we can't ignore that reality. Historically, you know, in the past or in the present, there's something about racism in the society that makes it a fun activity. Um, and that has been the case, not just in the United States, that's been the case in other, you know, uh, at other historical periods and other, in other societies, you know, the, uh, you know, w- one of the ways that in Nazi Germany, the uh, sort of propaganda machine uh, really accelerated um, um, in that society, in that period, was the fact that, again, uh, the amused racial contempt was being used, um, in this case, in particular, against uh, against Jewish people, right? They were seen as objects of amused contempt. They were depicted graphically as animals, as vermin to be exterminated. Um, and on the one hand, the story that, that that is told about those kinds of depictions is that, oh, well, these are just animated by hate and this is hate-filled sort of propaganda and imagery. But you look at some of the, the, the photographs of, you know, uh, of Nazi German troops Harassing, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jewish, you know, Jewish communities, uh, Jewish people on the streets, uh, and they're having fun doing it. You know, you, you see, you know, you know, old Jewish men having their beards trimmed in public, you know, by 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 Nazi uh, soldiers, uh, you know, they, and, and they're taking photographs, and everybody's having a fun time while they're doing it. You know, other pictures of, you know, Jews being forced to. To scrub clean public streets, you know, using toothbrushes on their hands and knees, you know, and and uh, German troops in the background, you know, find it hilarious. So, so there's something then about the, this again, this amused racial contempt, this finding joy 
in the mistreatment, abuse, and 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 misery of others. That that that, as you point out, um, kind of shows that yeah, that that social you know uh, oppression, exploitation, abuse, mistreatment, inequality is not just happening in this sort of you know. Uh, in, in this way that it's strictly motivated by this kind of, by this anger or, or, you know, this hatred for this group. And that's not to say that, that that's not also part of what's happening, but I think we tend to overemphasize that point and hear what I'm trying to say, like, no, wait a minute. If we look closely at our own history, we find that one of the ways that racism and white supremacy has, has, has been perpetuated and has been maintained uh, and has served as a pedagogical function has not been primarily through hate, but look at it, it's fun, it's funny. It, we're, we're socialized into accepting that it's fun and funny. Um, and, and that can be even when people of color are the ones reinforcing the racial tropes and the racial stereotypes. Um, uh, because you know the, the reality of blackface minstrelsy and comedy and other forms of racist joke telling is that it's not always exclusively 100% of the time only white folks that are engaging in this humor. Uh, it can be people of color uh, doing that too. It can be officers of color who are engaging in this kind of humor, uh, comedians of color um, and, and so forth, um, uh, at the same time that they could also be some of the ones who are opposing it or, or challenging it. So, so in that sense, the way white supremacy is, is, um, is circulated and perpetuated is a little bit more complex than the kind of simplified story that we often hear about it. Mm -hmm. Well, you have really dived into the complexity of racist humor. And I mean, such a great book. Um, thank you so much for being here with us this morning and just sharing a little bit about how you came to write this book and also some of the arguments that you have um, presented as well. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Perez. Thank you so much for having me again, Suna, and uh, yeah, great work with uh, with your show. Thank you again to Dr. Raul Perez. He is the author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. This book gave me so much to think about, and I really enjoyed how he made this kind of, it could be a difficult kind of idea to wrap your head around, but how he made it um, so real and so easy to understand. So thank you again to Dr. Perez for being here with us this morning. Well, today's positive note is this reminder, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Well, you've been listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa. I'm here every Monday morning. I hope you will come back and hang out with me next Monday morning. And if you miss some of today's show, or if you just need to listen again, do not worry. You can always catch the replay on WYXR.org or go ahead and subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format available wherever you stream podcasts. I hope you have a great day. And again, just remember in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Can't wait to have you back here with me next Monday morning.